Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. It's safe to say industrial policy is making a comeback. Members of Congress have been promoting legislative efforts to boost subsidies and other government-led incentives to encourage semiconductor chip manufacturers to create a larger presence of their operations in the United States for both economic and national security reasons. Despite the traditional concerns from free market supporters about the inefficient and wasteful government spending, this has become a bipartisan and a transatlantic endeavor in the name of competing with and protection from China. National security concerns around the chip industry being heavily based in Asia as a potential supply chain problem. This geographic juggernaut makes government funding for the chip industry more nuanced in the politics about the potential large investment of government funds into semiconductor industries. The fact that Taiwan is constantly under threat of invasion from China and houses the production site for the world's most advanced chips means that many people believe our best interests are served by a contingency plan that includes domestic production. Today, I am joined by my AEI colleague, Claude Barfield, for a discussion on if an industrial policy for the semiconductor industry is the best path forward due to national security factors at play with the U.S. chip industry. Our guest is Carl Wenberg. Carl is a Barbara Bergstrom Chair of the Educational Leadership and Excellence at the Stockholm School of Economics and a professor in the Department of Management and Organization. Carl has been doing research and innovation policy for two decades and was previously a small business owner. Carl is the co-author of an upcoming book titled Questioning the Entrepreneurial State that will be released in April. The book addresses how industrial policies affect risk, productivity, and incentives for private investment. Carl joins the podcast to discuss the industrial policies as a general concept, why the U.S. and Europe are adopting top-down investment models to protect their chip industries, and whether the state can truly be entrepreneurial. Carl, welcome to Explain to Shane. My colleague, Claude Barfield, brought you to my attention. So you have an upcoming book called Questioning the Entrepreneurial State, Status Quo and Pitfalls, and the Need for Credible Innovation Policy. What is the book's underlying premise and what inspired you to write it? So the book is kind of like an antithesis. So what inspired us to write the book is essentially that there's this big trend of big government uh, and not big government as we have traditionally been seeing it, but big government as being innovative and entrepreneurial. And we thought that that is an oxymoron. I mean, that is kind of like against what I've been doing research on for 20 years. And it's also against my kind of personal view of the things being a former small business owner. And government should rather not, you know, be cutting ribbons of grand projects, but maybe be cutting red tape or something like that. And so we set out to, to study this phenomena of entrepreneurial state, which I think is perhaps most popular in Europe, but certainly uh, growing also in the United States, East Asia, and along. And we had sort of massive backup and endorsement of of colleagues around the world. So we ended up writing a a joint book with 30 colleagues uh, all around the world that's coming out now uh, early April. I love that it piqued your interest so much that you couldn't just stop it like saying, oh, that's ridiculous. You like, I have a few words to say about that. Actually, plenty. It'll fill a book. There's always trends in industrial policy and especially innovation policy. I mean, maybe the first trend was 
post-World War II, uh, Vannevar Bush and the Endless Frontier, you know, the United States' big massive investment in, in space technology, plastics, computer and what have you, which has essentially spawned a lot of, you know, private enterprise and innovations. Uh, and then the, you know, second trend of Japan becoming a, a high-tech economy, Taiwan, China and the like. And now this third trend, which is really, you know, <laughs> about the government stepping in and directing sectors, technologies, type of actors and companies that's supposed to be investing in new technology. And that is really an odd thing for an economist. So I'm both a bit kind of worried, but also very sort of curious. What is this really and what's the logic? I don't know how much you actually followed what is specifically happening in the United States. I wonder if you could get your reaction about, Shane mentioned the, the Innovation Competitiveness Act, which is winding its way or trying to wind its way through Congress. It's really a, going to be a huge infusion of funds to across a number of technologies. And then specifically the United States, so the Congress has gotten um, very excited about what's going on and, and worried about what's happening in terms of semiconductors. And so we got this kind of melange of, of bills and executive actions that are coming. I don't know how much you followed it, but get your reaction to that in terms of what you're coming at, what your the larger picture that you're painting in your book. Hmm. So I'm altogether not that surprised. I mean, we could see similar trends just right after the great financial recession some 10 years ago, where I think a lot of industrial nations, perhaps specifically in the United States, you know, spent money on everything. Um, solar panels, um, heavily subsidized startups in specific sectors, what have you, many of which are not existing today, by the way. Um, so, I mean, there really has been a trend where government have been experimenting with these things. And, you know, there's always the case that if you sort of drastically, because of any reason, a pandemic, a financial meltdown, uh, need to infuse the economy with funds just to get going, you know, it's very easy for a policymaker to, you know, put on a little extra pork, so to speak, and perhaps invest in something that he or she feels strongly about, his or her constituents feel strongly about, or something that's just sort of on the general agenda. So we have seen sort of this development in the last few decades, but with the semiconductor specifically, I'm somewhat surprised of, of you know, the the magnitude of this discussion. I mean, there's been a number of, of unprecedented events, uh, you know, storms in Texas, fires in Taiwan, the COVID pandemic, which made all the consumers like us buy these technologies and, you know, things. Also not to mention that the automobile industry is rapidly turning towards a digital economy. So all of those things, of course, break up demand and, uh, you know, there's a short shortage. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not easy to build these gigafactories. I think the vast number of them are in Taiwan, right? If you're in Korea, one or two in the United States, Europe doesn't have anyone yet. So, of course, I mean, this is, this is a, perhaps not a foreseeable problem, but a problem that has many explanations. What is so interesting and odd is that everyone suddenly sees the need to sort of nationalize or subsidize these massive investments that worked well up until a few years ago. 
for political reasons, for you know, insecurity and supply chain reasons, and what have you. Yeah, I think that the national security element, I understand that, that you just don't want to be beholden to somebody in the, the, the South China Sea threat that we have under Taiwan. Mm. But when this first came up with the, the bill that Claude was referencing, we refer to it as Yusika, uh, it's been renamed a couple of different things. It doesn't seem to be as urgent as when it was first introduced and everybody panicked because unless you were really in involved in this, you didn't know that how important and impertinent these were to everything, right? You know, the, and so to the semiconductor you know, industry's credit, it's it's been fascinating to see everybody find out that anything that gets turned on has a semiconductor chip in it. And, mm -hmm. and we've also been like looking at, you know, all the different, you know, migration of maybe how you can change up who uses what chips and, you know, cars don't need things that are at the level of sophistication maybe or maybe not at your point, they are becoming kind of a, a digital computer, you know, has wheels. Um, so, you know, that, I think that's going to be a big discussion we're going to have here in the United States is, do we need to put a lot of financial support towards this industry or would the industry naturally migrate here? And I, I think that the security argument I get, but I'm starting to wonder about the second part of that, which is, you know, are we already kind of ready to do the investment and do we need that big chunk of government money? So, you know, as someone who has been studying entrepreneurs for the past decades and also trying to start a few businesses, I get very cautious when I hear private enterprises asking for sort of, you know, handouts by the government and not by customers. Uh, if there's something that we have an excess of now in the world, it is funds, it is money, it is, you know, highly risk-willing investments. And I think there's been more dollars printed in the last couple of years than ever before in history and the european central bank has been you know following with quantitative easing for over a decade you know we're drowning in money uh, investors are everywhere it's not a supply problem it's not a supply problem anyone can start a business anyone can make huge investments and get you know investors if they have a credible business plan so the question is is there a business plan and other customers to purchase all these chips. Before we go on to that, can we go back to Shane's point about security? Hmm. Um, it seems to me that with both the United States and Europe, the fact that the the, the Taiwan the, the Taiwan Semiconductor Company uh, has is both the most advanced and also the most I would say versatile of all the semiconductor companies around the world. Hmm. I think to me, we cannot, we being the United States, and I think this is also true with Europe, in terms of that specific problem, we cannot ignore, and I say this in, at the time where I think the, what is happening in Russia is going to spill over ultimately into Asia and with the Chinese. The mm -hmm. fact that uh, not, I wouldn't say the same thing about Samsung, but you do have on a very vulnerable place um, a key set of technologies. And mm -hmm. I, you know, the, the argument there is very different from the, from the arguments in general about industrial policy, pro or con, it seems to me. I'd be interested in your reaction to that. Uh, I think that's a very valid point. And I mean, there are very many related technologies. Take airspace, take a lot of the procurements that's done by the military complex, um, take farming and, and food supply. I mean, there are sectors um, 
that any country wants to have to some extent uh, in their, you know, in, in within their borders or or closely accessible within a sort of free trade region or uh, closely affiliated countries like you know uh, the European Union, for example. So this is a valid point. My question and, and concern is rather okay. So let's think about the demand issue. I mean, is there like a spike in demand or is it just some fluctuation due to you know uh, lack of shipment and uh, storms in texas um, and the covid pandemic do every country need these gigafactories or do we need perhaps better trade agreements to to trade with each other right now there's quite a few of these being planned in europe as well and i don't really see the demand for them all but I do understand I, that you don't want to have them all in the same place, very close to a potential hostile power. That's a valid point. I'll leave that for the moment to go because of my, my next set of questions were kind of contrasting what the situation in, in Europe in terms of industrial policy and where it's going and versus the United States. And then specifically in terms of semiconductors, your point about are there customers I remember a couple of months ago, he didn't say it loudly, but the head of the Taiwan Semiconductor Company who was being pressed about going, putting plants in Europe made the point that unlike the United States, which has a huge number of platform companies and all kinds of advanced companies that are customers, Europe doesn't have uh, an economy that is ready to really accept or buy the high-end computer chips that the Taiwanese company really is, you know, it specializes in. And I wondered what, beyond that, what Europe also has a plan about semiconductors that is following along and in some ways different. And that's my question to you. How does Europe contrast with what the United States is doing in terms of semiconductors or beyond that to industrial Mm. policy? So, So, you know, from a purely economic perspective, we can sort of, look at other sectors and other examples. What happens when you have something like the European Common Agriculture uh, Policy, uh, where you want sort of every nation to have, you know, a specific number of farmers in specific fields for cultural reasons um, and, and food security reasons and what else? Well, you have, you know, mountains of butter that kept, you know, goes to waste. You have rice that's being exported, subsidized to rice producing countries, often developing countries, ruining their own economy. What happens if you have an immature industry like the, you know, solar power industry in the US some 15 years ago that have this heavy subsidizing uh, because of the financial crisis at the time? You have a sea of glass, you know, you have, you have, waste because there are no customers. So I think we should really be concerned about government stepping in, uh, saying this and this and this and this is a national security industry, and they start producing. Uh, If you produce without customers, you should go out of business. And that's why we need private investors for these initiatives, because there is money. Well, don't they call the effect that we're seeing with supply chain management now? You know, everybody's in a panic because it's it it exists. But by the time they are able to do anything about it, it'll probably have righted itself on not just supply. I mean, on semiconductors, but a lot of things that are going on. 
in this process. I mean, the big one, the one that I think that is the real challenge is um, the labor market, you know, which we're running into, which is you're, you know, all these things are getting to our shores, but they're not able to get them across the rest of the United States because we are having um, a shortage of tractor, tractor trailer drivers. So um, that part gets interesting as well. So, um, but yeah, on semiconductors, uh, I was also just thinking that, you know, the thing reading all the news about Intel is Intel is the one that's really pushing it here in the United States. And a lot of it's because they want that injection of cash. I mean, it's just, and in Europe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they just want a case over there, right? Mm-hmm. So now we come to a second but important ingredient. So if we accept the fact that national security interests will always be in the picture of governments, and it should be a valid picture, then we come to the private industries and the industries association. And, you know, what happens when a company grows bigger and bigger is that their innovative capacity tends to sort of decline, right? And that is why you have Tesla. Tesla has changed the automobile industry. The problem is, of course, they have to invest in something. So what do they invest in? Well, they invest in lobbying. Uh, and, and, you know, the amount of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels, that's a whole cottage industry in itself. And, and I would say that's a more pertinent problem for innovation and entrepreneurship than these policies. Well, there's always a challenge, and I focus specifically on technology, but when you start to regulate into this space, you take a lot of the innovation out of it because people then rise to whatever is that norm, which becomes usually the floor, not the ceiling. Uh, Tesla is an interesting case, though, because they really have pushed the envelope on batteries in general. And, you know, we weren't really looking at that direction. We were still using lots of other mediums of, you know, getting our energy sources. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that would benefit from having a much more efficient and sufficient, you know, you know battery capability. And I think it's a wonderful example of what happens when you have, you know, private enterprises started by, let's say, eccentric people that do amazing things. These are things that, you know, incumbents are not incentivized to do. So they either follow or they invest in lobbying and other activities to kind of hamper innovation. So the most important things for governments around the world is to sort of, you know, keep those incumbents at bay and don't let them ruin the industry for new entrants. My colleague, Luis Ingales at Chicago used to say, saving capitalists from the capitalists. But, you know, there's a certain point to that, right? You don't want two big enterprises controlling their environment. We have a series of um, legislation going on on, around antitrust and competition that somewhat mimic what you all are looking at. um, Well, in Europe, the Direct Marketing Act. But in Europe, they are putting that antitrust, focusing specifically on big tech, American big tech companies, but they are sort of trying to loose it up. There's a lot of force now in trying to loose it up in order to create these giant companies in other sectors, right? To be independent of China, to be independent from the United States. And you know, that is the real problem. One other question about of European industrial policy, and I think it's a mm-hmm. contrast with the United States, and correct me if I'm wrong, the situation there is you do have the commission mm-hmm. and you do have some centralized money, mm-hmm. but you also have much more than we do here, individual countries, individual states, as it were. The United States, the thrust is going to always be from the federal government, though you may have large states like California or New York doing something on their own. But in, in Europe, 
the, the center is important, but the big com- the big countries like France and Germany are, are of equal importance. Is that correct or not? Is that your just in terms of government intervention? It is correct, but it's also um, somewhat of a problem. So what's happened in the European Union, the most important thing that's happened is it shrunk because of Brexit, right? So United Kingdom leaving the European Union also means that the power balance has shifted. Uh, The small northern European countries, the Scandinavian countries, Belgium, Netherlands, and the United Kingdom were always the free trade proponents. They were the free trade camp in the commission, in the parliament, etc. Because of being, you know, uh, smaller countries, um, countries with a history of commerce, um, countries with perhaps more diversified economies, etc., etc. So now you have these two big players, France and Germany, with different interests. Right, Germany is close to Russia. France has its legacy, its culture and tradition. So it's kind of like a little bit of a barter economy. We get that sector, I get that sector. We want to be independent in this respect, but we want to be sort of integrated in the world economy in another respect. And I think it's a very dangerous development. It's a potential because it, it essentially incentivizes the big countries to purchase support from smaller countries. And how do you purchase support? You do out stuff like subsidies, specific legislation efforts, etc. But it's not in the interest of everyone. It's not even in the interest of, of the big countries themselves because their productivity will gradually decrease. One of the things that's striking, I think, here, and it, it goes right to the uh, legislation we've been talking about that's just about to go through, hopefully we'll they hope we will finish Congress the uh, innovation and competitors law is that what you've got within one large bill, and I think it's it's not just a question of the legislation, but it's the way things go. And that is, you not only have the new subsidies industrial policy, but you also have substantial new trade policy initiatives within that bill against China and also trade just in, as, as protections in general. I wonder if that is the case in any sense in Europe as well as the United States, that subsidy and protection inevitably go together. That's a very good point. You're putting money, you're putting money in something as public money. So the, the argument you hear in the Congress is that, well, the public money ought to be spent here in the United States. And we also ought not to allow others to come in to compete. It's a good point. I would say in this respect, Probably at this point, Europe is better off than the US, but for specific reasons. So um, the European economy as a whole is somewhat less innovative. Uh, It's somewhat less diversified, meaning that you have to trade to increase your wealth, right? It has to be an integrated Mm -hmm. part of the world economy. Also, the European Union has a big history it has a kind of like a big rucksack of different industrial policies for culture and historical reasons and the common agriculture policy being the perfect example but there's also other type of type of policies so so there is a history of this and it's kind of easier for european policymakers just to sort of add something on that rucksack 
making their burden to carry it so much more heavy for the taxpayers in the European Union. So uh, what you're saying is, unfortunately, a direct and very natural consequence. It's a political economy response of subsidized industry. If you create these mountains of butters, the, the, the seas of glass, you essentially need to subsidize also the selling of those products in order to get rid of them. So you kind of, you know, warp the economy from something which is about, you know, customers and suppliers to something which is about the government running around, you know, trying to address specific crisis or what is perceived as a crisis or a potential crisis, you know, and very likely creating new problems along the way that have to be resolved. So you have your book coming out in April. We're looking forward to that. What else should we be looking forward to hearing from you in this space? Well, so we, we gathered these uh, uh, authors to help us with the book. And, you know, they will be coming on this from very different interests and, and perspectives. We have Italian economists writing about the investments in green technology. Now, investments in green technology is interesting because it also comes with a bigger purpose, right? Then it's even a bigger purpose than national independence and, and, and you know, security of people. It's about saving the planet, right? This is something we should take deeply serious. Problem, though, is that a lot of these initiatives get warped along the way. I need to invest in something. I need to change something to lower carbon dioxide. But perhaps, you know, you guys could carry a little bit heavier burden than our constituents over here in the short to medium term. So all of these initiatives, and there are many across the world, easily get warped along the way. And you miss those tremendous innovation opportunities that are being created, say, for example, in the battery space, in the electronic car and automobile uh, space. So that is something that, that I think we'll be seeing more of uh, because there's also going a lot of private investments into that space. Uh, so I'll be you know, curious and a bit concerned what happens with innovations in green technology. Um, I'm also going to be interested in, in seeing what happens with government and the role of governments per se, right? Because once you create these vehicles, uh, industrial policy in this sector, trade policy in that sector, more regulated economies, you also need to sort of beef up government to oversee those things. And, you know, I'm a public official, I'm a professor, and professors usually, you know, create assignments for themselves, right, or for their students. So do other public employees. So there's a natural sort of force of a bureaucracy to grow by its own force. And, and that is something that we could be seeing. And maybe we should be just a little bit worried about that. All right. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. We're all looking forward to reading the book soon. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.